HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported podcast network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. This year, we're celebrating 10 years of food radio. For the past decade, we've been taking you behind the scenes of farms, restaurants, breweries, school cafeterias, and more. It's been 10 years, and we're just getting started. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by MOFAD, the Museum of Food and Drink, inspiring public curiosity about food. Learn more at mofad.org. This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I am your host, Katie Kiefer. And as you heard just a moment ago, this is the Heritage Radio Network. Um, Today, we have a really um, exciting show for you because as people who have been listening to me regularly know, I've been doing a series on water quality issues, water as in the water that we drink, bathe in, and uh, recreate in. Um, And uh, that water is under threat from all sorts of... um, all sorts of reasons, all sorts of places, but uh, especially from uh, agriculture and also from, uh, in the case of North Carolina, where they basically have kind of a super-duper toxic fund site there, although nobody's admitting that, um, they are also under threat from uh, Shamor Chemical Plant, which is a, a spinoff from Dow DuPont, um, and also from their coal ash and energy companies that line the rivers there. And so today we're going to be speaking with uh, Dr. Larry Cahoon. Uh, He is the um, 2017 Distinguished Teaching Professor in the Biology and Marine Biology Department of the University of North Carolina in Wilmington, and he has promised me some serious dirt. Hey, Larry, thanks for joining me today. I know we're going to talk about coal ash, but first, I want you to spill the beans about those hog farms, because as many of my listeners already know, North Carolina is the second biggest hog producing state in the United States. And in the Cape Fear River Basin, that whole area is kind of ground zero for hog farms in North Carolina. So you said that you had some very significant information about how those hog farms are dealing with their incredible waste problem. Um, And I want you to tell me all about that. Yeah. Hi, Katie. Um, Yeah. Well, um, uh, for one thing, bear in mind that in North Carolina, which, as you said, is the second largest hog producing state in the country, uh, hog production is concentrated in a fairly small geographic area, Mm -hmm. uh, the central coastal plain. Um, poultry, on the other hand, and we rank third overall in poultry production, That's right. is scattered more throughout the state. Uh, if you look at Iowa, which is the number one uh, swine-producing state in the country, uh, they're spread out all over the state. Yeah. Uh, so they're not as geographically concentrated. Now, once you get down to a smaller scale, um, Almost all of our hog production in North Carolina and elsewhere, this is the industry standard now, uh, takes place on what we call concentrated animal feeding operations, or CAFOs. And so you have a lot of animals living in a very small place, and they generate a lot of waste. And in North Carolina, that waste is handled by what we call the anaerobic lagoon and spray field system. Right. Basically, the waste is washed out of the hog houses 
into a lagoon, and there's anaerobic processes that take place, lots of bacterial activity. And periodically, that uh, lagoon liquid is sprayed out on spray fields. The idea is that the spray fields then grow some kind of a cover crop. And the way the rules are written, um, they're allowed to spray the waste liquid from the lagoons in proportion to the ability of the plants to utilize the nutrients in that liquid. Right. And the idea is that a cover crop then grows on those nutrients, takes up the nutrients, and sequesters them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, um, <laughs> it's not quite that simple. And this is something I don't think very many folks in the public at large understand. It's technical. Okay. And I'm going to try and avoid getting too jargony and all of that. But That's okay. My listeners are pretty used to that. I have a lot of scientists on this show. That's, that's good. So, that's go, good. so, go, so go crazy, um, my man. Um, we have what's called a measure of plant-available nitrogen. Mm-hmm. That is the nitrogen that cover crops could use if they were able to get at it. For commercial fertilizer, the nitrogen in that fertilizer is usually considered to be 100% plant-available. Okay. Okay. And so when you get a recommendation to apply thus and such amount of commercial fertilizer, the stuff in bags, to your cornfield, your garden, whatever, Mm -hmm. the assumption is that all of that nitrogen could be taken up by the plants. It's all available for them to use right away. With hog waste from lagoons that spray applied, the number is 50% or so. It's, It's right around 50%. So the assumption right from the beginning is that only half the nitrogen in hog waste can actually be used by the cover crop. Mm -hmm. The other half that you apply is assumed not to be applied by the plants. That is, they can't use it. Right. They're not taking that up through their root systems. Got it. Right. Now, anybody who grows crops for a living knows that crop plants typically only take up about a half of the nitrogen that's that's given to them. They they can't get it all. Mm-hmm. Nobody's that efficient. So what that means in real numbers, for example, with North Carolina spray fields, most of them are used to grow uh, Bermuda grass hay, mm-hmm. which is chosen because it takes up the largest amount of nitrogen per acre per year of any other cover crop available. Okay. And nominally, that's supposed to be 300 pounds of nitrogen per acre per year. So they're allowed to apply that much hog waste that corresponds to that much nitrogen. Right. That's a lot. 300 pounds is a lot Yeah. per acre. That sounds like a lot to me. If you do the math, and it's real simple, they're actually allowed to apply 600 pounds of total nitrogen. Oh. The assumption is that the plants could only use half of it. I see. Okay. What happens to the other half? Yes. In soil, the microbes, the fungi, and other things will metabolize that stuff and recycle it. It's just that, you know, for the purposes of plant culture, we assume it's not immediately available to them. So when you apply 300 pounds of plant-available hog waste nitrogen, to an acre of Bermuda grass hay, you're really applying 600 pounds of total nitrogen. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> okay. And, and again, the assumption is that the plants would take up all of the plant-available nitrogen when, in fact, they don't. So they take up half of that. They take up about half of that. You know, that's kind of an average. So in reality, you're applying 450 pounds of nitrogen the plants either can't or won't use, right. and 150 pounds that they probably will. Got it. Wow. So what happens to the other 450 pounds of nitrogen per acre per year? Tell us, Dr. Cahoon. Well, it's going to be <laughs> metabolized in the soil, right? Yeah. Yeah, and it's going to be turned into various forms of nitrogen, some of which support soil microbe growth, and some of which will be exported in the groundwater. Uh-huh and runoff and that sort of thing. Right. So it's not at all surprising that when you look at groundwater from spray fields or from areas immediately adjacent, 
you find whopping high levels of nitrate, which is uh, an oxidized form of nitrogen. Yep. Nitrate is a drinking water contaminant. Mm. Causes blue baby syndrome. Right. It's also been implicated in certain kinds of cancers. Really? And, yes. Which kinds? If you know off um, the top of your head. I should have asked you that before so you could prepare. But. Nitrate in your gut, if you drink enough of it, uh, is changed to nitrite ion. Yep. NO2 minus. Uh-huh. And that can form nitrosamines in your gut, and those uh-huh. are mild carcinogens. They're you know they're not tobacco or asbestos, but it's a it's a mild carcinogen. Um, the I'd still say the major risk is blue baby syndrome, uh-huh. hemoglobinemia, uh, where the nitrite interferes with uh, fetal hemoglobin uptake of oxygen. Yeah, and, and so fetuses and babies wind up. Uh, unable to get enough oxygen. That's why they're called blue babies because they right. show up blue. Because they come out blue. That's oxygen, right. Which is bad. Right. Yes, it is. Yeah. Yeah. And by the way, uh, what you're talking about is also um, happens a lot in, for instance, uh, I know that Lake Erie and the city of Toledo, Lake Erie is heavily contaminated with cyanobacteria, which is yeah. caused by that same kind of runoff. Am I right? And uh, yeah. and then they they also have had you know multi, almost every summer for the last five or six years I believe they've had to uh, issue warnings about the drinking water in right. Toledo Ohio and I'm sure other places yeah. around the Great Lakes with the same problems. Now have you seen those kinds of warnings? Uh, let let me backtrack for a second. What what kind of levels of nitrates are you as a chemist? You know, as a biologist, are you seeing in water drinking water in your area? Because you're in the um, Cape Fear River Basin, right? The municipal supplies generally are pretty clean in that regard. But they have so they uh, the have real enough... risk is well water, right? Ah, right. Uh, especially nearby spray fields, and for that matter, nearby agricultural fields where they're applying large amounts of fertilizer for a long time. Right, sure. Uh, it's not just you know swine waste that's causing a problem. It's it's general application of large quantities of nitrogen-based fertilizers, whether they're organic or inorganic. Right. Um, so you know that that's an issue primarily in rural areas, and. You know, you can have your well tested by the county health department, and they'll look for nitrate, mm-hmm. and they'll tell you if it's above the the action level. The action level is pretty high, by the way. It's ten milligrams per liter. That's parts per million. It, right. You may not sound like a lot, but um, that that level of nitrate is really bad. Yeah. And uh, sure enough, we find um, well water samples from rural areas around agriculture, turning that up more often than we'd like. Oh, wow. Okay. Not every well, by, uh, by any means, but, you know, more often than we'd like, and what we'd like is zero. Yeah, of course. Of course. Yeah. So we, uh, I'm going to take you back for a second to what you said at the beginning of this, which was you, you implied that there was another system of waste management in the, in the swine uh, industry beyond the lagoons uh, plus spray, spraying onto fields as fertilizer. What, what, I'm not aware of any other system besides that. What else are uh, they North using? North Carolina, that's really the only uh, frequent uh, waste management system mm-hmm. that you see. Now, bear in mind that you know prior to about 1990, uh, hog production in North Carolina was generally a small-scale affair. Yes, um, we raised uh, a couple million swine uh, per year, and they were spread out on mm-hmm. 20 or 30 thousand small operations. And right. those animals generally roamed free. That's right. Um, there are disadvantages to that. You know, they poop directly in streams and that sort of thing, which is not good. They picked up trichinosis. Um, you mm. know, the farm-raised animals you get now, the ones raised in confinement, uh, are much safer to eat from that point of view. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're managed more carefully. Um, there, there are upsides and downsides to it. And, you know, we could go off into different dimensions about animal welfare and that sort of thing. But... Um, my own focus has been on the nutrient problem because sure. in, in order to grow all those animals, you got to bring in an awful lot of feed. And the yes. feed is what contains the nutrients, right? Right. And so the feed is being brought in from out of North Carolina because we can't grow enough corn and soybeans to feed our herds of swine and poultry. Of course. Totally understood. Yeah. yeah. So it's all new nutrients. It's all being brought into the state. Most of it left behind is waste matter. Uh-huh. Um, right. In terms of other ways of handling the waste, 
they're all more expensive. Um, right. A while back, we went through an exercise in looking at alternate waste treatment technologies. Uh-huh. And some number of them were identified that were environmentally superior to the uh, anaerobic lagoon spray field method, but they were not economically competitive. The structure of the industry here in North Carolina, and probably elsewhere, is that the uh, producers, the guys who grow the swine on their property... Yeah, the contract farmers, yes. Yeah, the mm-hmm. contractors, they own the waste. They I don't know. own the pigs. Right. And they don't own the feed, but they own the the land and they own the waste on it. And they own the dead pigs. They own dead ones, yeah. Yep. So when there's a big hurricane and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of pigs are killed in a flood, they own those uh, pigs, don't it, they? It varies. Um, probably the worst storm mortality problem we had was Floyd mm-hmm. back in 1999. Um, we've, we've since, we being the state of North Carolina, the taxpayers, yeah. have since bought out a bunch of the operations that were in floodplains. Right. That's what I understood. So the mortality from, from the last big storm, Florence, was yeah. only in the tens of thousands. Right, right. But you yeah. lost hundreds of thousands of chickens. And in, again, yeah, in the right. in the yeah, case I've, of the chickens, yeah, we, we, those... we've got hundreds of millions of chickens right. at any one time in the state. Right. So you know, losing you know hundreds of thousands of them is is you know point one percent. Exactly. Like that. Yeah. No, it was it yeah. was terrifying. And there'll be thirty thousand of them in a in a you know a, a chicken barn. Yeah. No, absolutely. Yeah, so, you know, you put a few of those underwater, you got 100,000 dead chickens right there. Right. And where, where do they go? What do they do? They put them in landfill? I forgot to ask Rick Dove about that. I meant to ask him when he was on the show. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> where did they, yeah, where did they put them question. all from, from, um, uh, from Florence, Floyd, for example? When we had, you know, a, a lot of flooding and a lot of mortalities because of that. They tried burning them, and, and burning dead animals is tough. Uh, it's, it, you know, this, Especially this is waterlogged stuff, ones. you know, so... Yeah, I don't want to get too far down into the awful things, but uh, <laughs> it's very hard to burn a pig. Okay. Yeah, uh, oh my you know, God. cremate one is is energetically very expensive, and after a flood, there's not a whole lot of uh, dry firewood laying around. If right, you get my meaning. Yes, sir. Oh gosh. Yeah, and um, <laughs> <laughs> there were far too many of them to cart off to rendering facilities yeah. all at once. Plus, the roads were flooded and closed. Um, and so they wound up, by and large, burying those. Yeah. So just get yeah. out the backhoe and dig a big-ass trench. Uh, that's right. Yeah. Oh, that's gross. That's what was done with most of those. Wowee. And that's not an issue for water quality? Uh, that uh, you know, that, well, d- that decomposition uh, doesn't uh, enter the water by, table? Yes. Yeah, I would think so. Yeah. Yeah. So, Larry, let us turn our attention now to that very interesting uh, chapter that you sent to me about... Um, yeah. <laughs> about the uh, Gen X, which is right. for people who haven't, who didn't listen, for example, to my show with Rick Dove last week um, or week before last. Gen X uh, is a byproduct from the production of Teflon, uh, among other things. It's, I, I guess, it's, I guess, Teflon is kind of a, a catch-all for sort of uh, industrial lubricant, essentially, right? Uh, there, there are lots of compounds made with uh, fluorine. Uh-huh. Um, and they're usually perfluorinated. That is, the, the organic molecules are saturated with fluorine atoms. Mm-hmm. Um, Teflon's one of those products. And you find compounds like that in a lot of uses. Yes, electronics. You know, Teflon frying pans are right. probably the poster child for that. But an awful lot of um, waterproof uh, clothing, carpets, things like that, mm. uh, firefighting foams. All kinds of products out there right. uh, contain perfluorinated compounds. And that's um, the PFOAs. Right. That, but have let's got just... a layer of a perfluorinated compound in them. Right. And so when people uh, see the tremendous term... Tremendous number of uses. And the reason that they're useful is that the atomic bonds between fluorine and carbon are extremely tough to break. Mm-hmm. They just don't break down. Mm-hmm. You know, that's why you get away with cooking at high temperature in a Teflon frying pan, right? Sure. The Teflon simply doesn't burn. Right. And it scratches. It stick to things. <laughs> it scratches so, really yeah, easily. It's a combination of properties <laughs> that are very useful, right? Yes, yes, yes. But can, can, we, um, can I just clarify? In X, you know, which right. is not the age group, um, for some reason they chose that as a, yeah. a, you know, a trade name for this compound. It's got a fancy chemical name or set of names, actually. And, and if that's the only way we knew it, if that was the only thing we could call it is by its standard organic chemical name, 
no one would be talking about it. But it's a uh-huh. four-letter word, and we can all pronounce Gen X. Right. Well, they make that stuff as both a byproduct and as a commercial product up the river from us here in Wilmington yes. up at uh, the Fayetteville Works, which is a chemical factory actually downstream of Fayetteville, North Carolina. Mm-hmm. And they've been making Gen X as a byproduct of a different synthesis process since about 1980. And that apparently was dumped into the Cape Fear River without our knowledge. Now, did anybody, you know, did they need at that time? Because let's talk about 1980. I mean, people were not as aware as they are now of sort of the hazards. I mean, we had Love Canal in the 70s. (laughs) I mean, people were just beginning to kind of figure out that you really can't dump this stuff into water bodies and not expect any repercussions. So Um, was that, do you think it was like, okay, we're just going to do this and nobody's going to notice, or we just didn't realize, or what happened? I mean, I I have uh, a hard time always thinking the worst. It's hard to know what went through the heads of the guys running (laughs) the operation. I can't speak for, you know, what they were thinking or talking about privately. But the Clean Water Act was already in force at that point. Okay. Clean Water Act regulates what you can discharge into the waters of the United States. That's all the navigable waters. And the Cape Fear River is certainly one of those. Yes. Um, in order to discharge anything into surface waters through a pipe or whatever, you need a permit under the Clean Water Act. There are other permits and other kinds of approvals that may be required as part of the industrial process. Uh-huh. But to discharge anything into the water, you need a permit. Right. Okay. An NPDES permit, National Pollutant Discharge Elimination System Permit. Okay. And that permit spells out how much volume of liquid you're going to discharge and what's in it. Uh Uh-huh. And because this is a... Oh, let's see, kind of a trust-me sort of thing. The burden is on the proposed discharger, those who intend to do this, to disclose fully to the permitting agency what's in their discharge. Okay, they're supposed to make a list of all the things that are likely to be there. Okay, can I ask you this? Stop for one second. Do the people who are issuing the permits, are they scientists? Like, what... What no. what qualifies the them regulators. to be able? What qualifies them to regulate this? These chemicals. Uh, it's what they get paid for. Jesus. <laughs> um, the the way the Clean Water Act works is that uh, it's federal law. Um, each state uh, has the authority uh, to administer that program itself. It has to have a properly constituted permitting system and a regulatory agency that can, you know, actually fulfill the obligations and so forth. But generally, the Environmental Protection Agency delegates permitting and enforcement authority to the states. Okay. So it's up to each state uh, to have a program for doing that. And so these permits are federal permits, but they're issued by the respective states. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, the feds can't afford to do it all themselves. Right. And, of course, you know, with Republican uh, control of, of, you know, Various houses, they they don't want the government involved in controlling those uh, things for better or worse. There's a limit to what they can do, one way or yeah. the other. Yeah. I mean, they're nibbling around the edges of the Clean Water Act, but oh, I you know. Know, the, the core, the <laughs> essence of it, is pretty much uh, cast in stone. Nobody's going to go after that unless uh, you know you want to be voted out of office. The voters are not going to tolerate getting rid of the Clean Water Act. I don't know if that's true. I mean, look at oh, your yeah. state, Larry. Trust look at that. look that, at that, North Carolina. I mean, they, they they nibble around the edges, but you know, if you told people, "Hey, we're going to allow anybody who wants to to dump anything they want to in your drinking water supply," <laughs> you're not going to be in office much longer. I suppose that's uh, true. You'll probably wind up in jail. Well, maybe. Uh, you know, Larry, we're going to take a short <laughs> we're going to take a short station break um, for a sponsor okay. drop. We'll be right back with Dr. Larry Cahoon from the University of North Carolina at Wilmington. We're talking about uh, chemical waste in uh, river rivers and streams in North Carolina after, especially after Hurricane Florence. So, stay tuned. We got a lot more to go.
This episode is brought to you by MOFAD, the Museum of Food and Drink. Featuring a variety of interactive displays, MOFAD encourages eaters of all ages to be curious about food. The museum currently operates MOFAD Lab, a 5,000-square-foot experimental space in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, where Chow, making the Chinese-American restaurant, is currently on show until the end of March 2019. This exhibition celebrates the birth and evolution of Chinese-American restaurants, tracing their nearly 170-year history and sparking conversations about food culture, immigration, and what it means to be American. It highlights the evolution timeline of Chinese-American restaurant menus, dating back to 1910, and also highlights a tasting section where participants get to enjoy tastings created by the country's most talented chefs who specialize in Chinese-American cuisine. Make sure you check out Chow while you still can. The exhibition closes at the end of March 2019. Check out MOFAD's tastings and extensive event calendar at mofad.org events. Are you enjoying this podcast? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. Hi, my name is Sam Ben Ruby, and I'm the host of The Grape Nation on Heritage Radio Network. With this show, we bring wine to the people. Each week, we bring the best guests in wine on, taste different wines on air, and invite our listeners to taste with us. You'll find our approach to wine decidedly unsnobby. You can find The Grape Nation wherever you listen to podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org. I love that. I'm just like rocking out here. This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer. We're talking to Dr. Larry Cahoon from the University of North Carolina in Wilmington, if you're just joining the program, which is unlikely because most people listen to this as a podcast, but just in case you're just tuning in. Um, uh, Larry, we were <laughs> we were talking about the permitting process, but I want to go on and right. talk about your chapter uh, that you yeah. sent me to read. And you, you <sighs> referred, <laughs> which I mean, I'm honestly, I was literally, my jaw was hanging off of my face. So now that we know that the permitting process is essentially, um, you know, uh, adjudicated by uh, unprepared lay people who are not scientists and probably don't have any idea what the chemicals are that they're reading about, um, you, you referenced a study by a, another colleague uh, named Sun et al., mm-hmm. um, and it revealed yep. that there were a significant amount of both novel chemicals, and that's in quotes, yep. novel chemicals yep. such as such as Gen X, and then something called legacy chemicals. Um, legacy. Yes. And so I wondered if you could, A, describe what you mean by that briefly. And then secondly, um, until the Wilmington Star, your local paper, published uh, an article on those findings, um, you suggested that the uh, Department of Environmental Quality uh, failed to, apparently failed to grasp the import uh, of... (laughs) Of their findings, so I, uh, you know, once you describe the legacy and novel chemicals, will you, can you then right. say whether or not there was um, a measurable or <laughs> public health impact uh, that you were able or somebody was able to discern following that? Okay, so that that's a that, that's very a big long question. Series of things. I know. Let me back up Sorry. a moment. The, yes. Let, let me say a few things about the people in the regulatory agencies. They often do have science backgrounds. Okay. Uh, a number of my former grad students who got master's degrees here, for example, work in the agencies. Oh, okay. Um, but that doesn't mean that they are versed in all aspects of the technical details of each industrial process that they're regulating. Sure. So in the case of an outfit like Chemwars or DuPont, I bet there was nobody in the agency who understood uh, perfluorinated compound chemistry. Right. Because uh, that's a that's a very specialized, very high level kind of chemistry. Mm. Um, in addition to that, you've got the technical people in the agency, and then you've got the policy and politics people in the agency. So I'll I'll come back around to that. Ooh, yeah, yeah. So the 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 history of the uh, perfluorinated compound business is that. Uh, when they discovered these compounds back in the late 1930s, when they, they discovered Teflon, it's quite by accident, mm-hmm. um, they realized that there were lots of possibilities for using these compounds in many different applications. And so 
you know, they went into the labs, and, and again, these were high-level, seriously well-trained uh, organic chemists. Okay. And, you know, they developed some of the initial products uh, that they were using. Um, the, the the one that's fairly famous now is PFOA, P-F-O-A right. or C8. That was... Uh, used in the past as a precursor for Teflon synthesis. It was phased out because after uh, 50-some years of production, they realized that it was causing toxicity problems for humans. Okay. And when I say they realized it, EPA found out that DuPont and some of the others had been cheating and not disclosing all of the health and safety information that they had internally. Uh-huh. And they were fined a fairly large amount of money for that. But not enough they to put them out of business. They were also sued over uh, PFOA pollution um, to the tune of many hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, Gen X came along as a substitute for PFOA. Right. Some number of these perfluorinated compounds have now been phased out of production and use in the United States. PFOA is one of those, one called PFOS, PFOS, another uh, legacy compound, which was used in firefighting foams and that sort of thing. It's also been phased out. What we call the legacy compounds are no longer produced, no longer utilized, uh, here anyway. Uh, you can't even import them unless there's some very, very special reason to allow that. So those things um, are still with us because they don't break down in the environment. We're finding you know, very large concentrations of those things in certain places uh, a decade or more after they were phased out. They wow. don't break down. Uh, the newer compounds, the, uh, the novel ones, are the ones that have been uh, discovered or invented or produced more recently and are only now showing up in environmental sampling efforts. Uh, the paper you referenced by Sun et al., the, uh, the senior author was Detlef Kanapi, who's a, uh, actually an engineering scientist at NC State, but he's mm-hmm. done a lot of work on water quality issues. Uh-huh. And his lab was the one that identified significant numbers of both legacy and novel compounds in the Cape Fear River, mm-hmm. uh, in conjunction with studies done by the uh, EPA lab at Research Triangle Park in North Carolina. So um, <clears throat> they began turning these things up. There were a lot of unknowns that they've subsequently worked to identify, and they figured out pretty quickly they were coming out of chemoirs, a lot of them. Right. The legacy compounds are all over the place, but the novel ones, by and large, were coming out of the chemoirs effluent. Mm-hmm. When Dr. Kanapi notified the state's uh, regulators, um, he spoke to um, the deputy director of the Department of Environmental Quality in November of uh, 2016, and they ignored him. They did nothing. Wow. Yeah. So, you know, that that's the political level at work. They didn't want to hear it. Oof. And, yeah. But have there been no, like, clusters? Like, what about fish well, kills or, you know, clusters okay. of illnesses? Well, um, I mean, there the should be... The stuff is present at concentrations that are probably not going to kill fish outright. Uh-huh. Um, we're talking about somewhere in the hundreds of parts per trillion. Now, that doesn't sound like a lot, but toxicologically it can be. Um, when you talk about looking for clusters of cancer and that sort of thing in the exposed human population, that's a tough thing to do uh. unless it clubs you over the head, <laughs> okay? Uh, you know, 9-11 first responders in New York were exposed to a tremendous amount of toxic material, and sure enough, 10, 15 years down the road, they're turning up dead in large numbers because of yes. a variety of cancers and such. Yes. And so, you know, we can relate exposure, because we know exactly what they were doing and for how long, to a variety of illnesses. That's relatively easy to do with epidemiology. In the case of this Mm -hmm. stuff, it's not enough to survey the population that lives here now and say, well, do you have this cancer or that cancer. You got to look at mortality records. You got to look at people's residential histories. Right. Were you on a well? 
Were you drinking municipal water? If so, for how long? Uh, have you moved here recently? How long have you lived here? There are many simple questions right. like that that you have to sort through. And believe it or not, a population of a couple hundred thousand, although it sounds like a lot of people, unless the signal is huge, it's going to be very difficult to find it. I'm not saying it isn't there, and I'm mm -hmm. not saying those effects haven't happened. But statistically speaking, it's an extremely challenging task to come out and say, oh, here's a signal. Mm -hmm. um, that said, the state's Department of Health and Human Services um, put out two weeks after the story broke the claim that they were not able to find any significant health effects from this. Mm -hmm. And those of us who understand epidemiology and statistics were thinking to ourselves, yeah, right. <laughs> uh, you didn't look very hard, did you, Ace? Right. Uh, and so, you know, I, I, I wow. thought very little of that. Yes. Um, but the population, the population was, uh, the, the, the fears of your local population, I'm sure, were significantly allayed by that statement. Uh, most of us, you know... <laughs> Uh, I can't say this on, on public broadcasting. Let's just put it that way. Right. The initials B and S come to mind. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, I mean, you know, when you're lied to enough times, you, you get to the point where it's, uh, okay, you know, you're telling us it was safe. Yeah, right. We don't right. believe you. It's just not, it's not credible that a chemical right. like that would be safe. Now, you, you, it, you raised the point that, that the even the chemical analysis that okay so then okay so after this happened then <laughs> Camores had to come up with they had to come up with some sort of thing that demonstrated that you know what they were pumping in there wasn't that worrisome and so you you raised the point that the chemical analysis they were using I guess that was excuse me in the Department of Environmental Quality was not mm -hmm. using uh, you know a, a type of chemical analysis like um, that was sufficiently uh, high level to even be able to detect what you right. thought they should be able to detect. So can, can well, you explain that better yeah. than I just did to you? <laughs> right, right, yeah. So so chemwars. Um, both in, in writing and in uh, verbal communications over a period of 15 years, claim that they did not have adequate technology to detect uh, these compounds like Gen X uh, in their effluent. And therefore, uh, you know, do they really need to report them if they can't detect them? I see. And then they proceed to describe the, the technology that they use to detect the stuff and express the concern that its sensitivity is not adequate. Right. And, you know, I look at that and, and you know, they, they trot out the fancy jargon. It's nuclear magnetic resonance spectroscopy. I had organic chemistry. Okay. Yeah. I know what NMR does and what it doesn't do. And it's not what you use to quantify things. Uh, if if you're a serious chemist, okay, and right. Dupont and Chemoirs are serious chemists, yeah, you know you're you're peeing on my leg and trying to make me believe <laughs> that it's raining. Uh, they certainly knew better. Good one, Larry. They certainly knew what was in their discharges because sure. these byproducts are the result of a series of reactions that they are controlling. Exactly. Yeah, and they know what their waste products are because, just as with uh, some number of other things, what's a waste product today or a byproduct might turn out to be commercially valuable tomorrow. Uh -huh, so, of, of course, course, they knew. Yes. That's how they discovered Gen X in 1963 in the first place. Understood. Wow. Okay. When you're that good a chemist, you can kind of predict what you're going to uh, produce from a set of reactions. Sure. It's not like you just mix two things together and, whoa, let's see what happens. Right. <laughs> Maybe it'll turn green. Maybe it'll blow up. Maybe it'll all turn into mushrooms. You know? right. No, they have a far better idea than that. Well, and then they go funny. and characterize the actual products and say, okay, that fits with what we expected. That fits with what we expected and so forth and so on. And then they say, aha, look at that. Right. Here's a new molecule. Let's think about what we can do with it. And they put it on the shelf, and they study it. And 30-some years down the road, they decide, hey, that chemical we found back when, 
that thing could be valuable. Let's right. produce it commercially. Right, right. That's what happened with Gen X. They were producing it uh, at Fayetteville Works starting in 1980 as a byproduct. Uh-huh. And it went out in their waste stream. And in 2009, they applied for a permit to produce the stuff commercially. Right. For use in yeah. other applications. Right. 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 Well, now I'm going to, we have to wrap this up, unfortunately, in a few minutes because yeah. I've learned that my, you know, people kind of tune out after about 40 minutes. <laughs> but, um, but sadly, yeah, so my students. Yes, yeah. I know. But there is one, there's a couple of points that I want to raise um, that I know that you're going to be able to respond to very well. Mm-hmm. So, first of all, you said, and I'm going to quote from your paper, that discharge monitoring is financially beyond the scope of regulatory agencies' means, right. and that it should be a regular cost of doing business. Right. by Kimor or Dow Dupont yep. or any of these things. And then yep. the other thing that you said, which I thought was very salient, was that new compounds are discovered faster than they can be evaluated for safety. And mm. so, and yet they they get, they get yep. you know, find their way into the environment before you can say jackrabbit. Um, you know, right. it's like we have that G-R-A-S grass, you know, generally regarded as safe. I think that's what it means. Right. Um, right. It, it, that's what you're sort of talking about there. And and so those two things, and especially the idea that, that these... That these products, these chemists, that the, the, the monitoring is beyond the financial means of the of the mm-hmm. regulatory agencies, just as uh, waste disposal is beyond the financial means of any contract farmer. In other words, any yeah. of these entities that are not as fully funded as, say, a Dow DuPont or a Camors uh, or a Smithfield or a Tyson, they're never going to have enough money to address these. You know, the the, the smaller aspects are not, the smaller people are not going to have enough money the way the big giants are to address these um, these issues. And I'm wondering what you think the answer is in terms of trying to find regulations that would force, say, a Dow DuPont or a Kimors or a Smithfield or Tyson to take control of their waste and manage it, uh, you know, so that it's, it does not become an environmental hazard. I don't right. know what the answer is to that. What do you think it is? Well, you know, there, that, that, that's a multidimensional problem. Um, for one thing, you know, as you said at the very beginning of this this question, um, the state regulatory agencies do not have the resources, the people, or the money, or the time to monitor every discharge that's right. out there. That's why we require the dischargers themselves to do a monitoring program for their discharges. So right. they're they're self monitoring and they're self reporting. Now it's under penalty of perjury. And, you know, the state has the right to inspect, and whenever we find a problem and so forth, um, you know, they're supposed to self-report, hey, we had a problem. If they don't and they get caught not reporting uh, or deliberately violating things, there are legal penalties. And this this does happen. Yes. Um, there are other situations where, and I think this is what happened with Chemwars, um, they just didn't tell us what was in their discharge. Uh, right. Almost all of their permits... Uh, name not one perfluorinated compound as being present in any of their discharges. Well, because they were using na- nuclear mass tre- spectrometry. Well, they, they <laughs> didn't think the state up. could detect them, for right. one thing, uh-huh. because they claimed they couldn't detect them. Right. Um, but on top of that, who was going to come and look? Mm-hmm. How were you going to find them? Right. These are tough compounds to analyze for. The standard technique for doing it wasn't approved until 2009. Wow. Yeah. So they've been doing this for decades. Yes, they have. Yeah. yeah. Right. And so, you know, there, there's an element of good faith in here, but when, when they cheat, uh, there has to be a willingness to enforce. And frankly, uh, you know, my personal point of view is that North Carolina hasn't had the will to enforce. Right. This goes back a long way. Uh, you know, it, I don't think it's Republican, Democrat. I think it's that this is a big outfit, and they didn't want to piss them off. Right, because they, they contribute so much money to the political system. Well, they're is big that employer. it? Are they a big employer? They a lot of tax revenue. Um, right. They do have very good lawyers. Right. They are politically connected, and they're, you know, they're a big outfit. I mean, right. DuPont is a very big outfit. Huge, so huge, is Kemworth. Of course, yes. Yeah. So, you know, you're not dealing with mom and pop running a a pig farm down the street. Right. Right. Um, You know, or a a small town sewage plant that's not operating properly. You're dealing with the big boys. Yeah. And they can be very difficult to deal with. 
at the very least, they'll wrap you up in court for however many decades it takes. Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Which was why it was so incredible that the um, that community last year won their suit against Murphy Brown. I forget the name of the community, but that was in North Carolina also. Yeah, Did you follow that? That was extraordinary. Um, there were about 12 of them, 12 yes. trials. Uh, I think they've gone through four. Yes. But at least one of them won a something like $50 million judgment against Four Smithfield. of them won. Four of them, um, yes. Yeah, three of them got very substantial judgments. Uh, last I heard, and my information's not complete, uh, the judge set aside the jury award in the last case. Mm. Uh, but they were for very substantial amounts. And, of course, it's being appealed. Yes. So, you Those know, people will never that, see that. That was movie. one of the first times that uh, a civil action against... Um, CAFO industry uh, was successful. It was the only time. I mean, these yeah. are the. This is the first time in the history of CAFOs, which is about fifty mm-hmm. years, I suppose. Yeah, they've uh, been beating back nuisance cases for quite a while. Oh yeah, absolutely. I follow this stuff quite a bit. Um, yeah, uh, yeah. This this is reminiscent of the tobacco industry. You yes. Know, it, it it took an awful long time before somebody prevailed against them in court. Yeah. I have one. Okay, I have one last question because it. it okay. I mean, these all of these uh, shows that I've done with like Rick Dove and talking about North Carolina water and because yeah. I feel like North Carolina is is sort of like the the glowing example, you know, the radioactive example of what <laughs> happens when you yeah, allow industry, do what we do. <laughs> <laughs> when you allow industry to just kind of you know pull down your pants. I mean, it's you know you've got you've got the chemical industry, you've got the 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 animal agricultural industry. And you have the coal ash or the, you know, the energy industries, you know, they're all polluting you guys every which way. And um, so one of the things, one of the reasons I got interested in this, of course, was the aftermath of Hurricane Florence and the catastrophic flooding that you suffered. And so I did want to ask you this one last question about sort of when those chemicals, really almost all of this stuff eventually settles down into the silt of the riverbed, if I'm not mistaken. You know, all of these chemicals. A, a things, lot of that. A stuff lot of it. The heavy yeah. metals, you know, the, the nitrates, the, you know, all of that stuff ends up in the silt. But when you have a catastrophic flood like that and the river, you know, exceeds its banks, isn't it spreading those chemicals all over the land? Like, isn't it then winding up in people's front lawns? Um, and... Yeah, and and bear in mind that, you know, the massive flood event we just had with Florence um, yeah. belched a lot of that out into the ocean. Oh, great. Okay. <laughs> uh, which, you know, is, is better than having it in your backyard, maybe. I guess. But, um, there was a tremendous amount of rainfall. And yeah. if, if you assume that the rain itself is relatively clean, you had a tremendous amount of dilution taking place. But, mm-hmm. yes, you know, it's smearing lots of nasties all over the flooded landscape, too. And, you know, we warn people about this in flood zones. Yeah. Um, you know, assume that the mud in your house crawling up the walls is toxic. Yes. I mean, that's what uh, I was assume thinking. Assume that the stuff coating the trees and covering your car is probably pretty nasty in right. a lot of different ways. It's not necessarily not concentrated the way that the original waste products would be, but nevertheless, you have a cocktail of things. So yes, pretend it's dirty and clean it off properly, and don't expose yourself. Right. Don't let your your skin touch it. Don't get it in your mouth or your eyes. I mean, right. Ah, I was just like, it's all I can think of is like this is a this you know that part of the state is should be like a super duper fun site. That's all I could think of. Uh, well. I know. Ugh, I just, live here. I hate to think of it I like know. that. But, I know. Well, I uh, feel for you guys. I really do. And my nephew went to UNC Wilmington, and he drank mm-hmm. that water for four years. Let me tell you, he was horrified when he read that story that was in the Wilmington <laughs> story. He was like, oh, God, what have I done to myself? Well, Larry, this, yeah. we have come to the point in the show where you are allowed to promote yourself shamelessly. And I really hope that you've enjoyed this and that you'll come back and talk to me again, because you're a wonderful interview. I mean, thank God sure, for a sense well, of humor. You. You're terrific. I am. Um, so knowledgeable. I do enjoy talking to the public. I, um, you know, part of my job, all right, I'm a state employee. I'm a professor at a state university. Part of my job mm-hmm. is to help the public, not just the students who pay tuition here, but the right. public that's paying the freight uh, to understand some of these issues. A lot of these things are very technical, very complicated, yeah. and they don't get well treated necessarily, uh, you know, with your day-to-day newspapers or TV coverage or things like that. Right. 
And some of these things, frankly, require a fair amount of study before you really understand them well enough to explain them. I would imagine. And so I see my job as being an explainer. And hopefully I've done that well today. Oh, yes. Um, I didn't know, have so. any problem following you, and it's really all oh, about good. me, dude. <laughs> Good. As I frequently say, it's all about me, honey. Um, do you have a Do you have a website or a blog or any place where people can learn more? Or um, you're I a professor, but, so um, my email address for anyone who wants to chat oh, with me one on one is c a h o o n at u n c w dot e d u. Okay, folks, so you heard it here first. If you want to ask Larry questions, and that goes for anybody who's anywhere in the country, because this is a man who understands chemistry and biology very well, obviously. And so if you are in Iowa, if you are in Michigan, Mm -hmm. if you are in Ohio, if you are in Maryland, any place that's really an ag-heavy state or an energy-heavy state, Dr. Cahoon can answer your questions. So check him (laughs) out. Larry, thank you so, so much for joining me today. And thank you to my wonderful sponsor, MOFAD, the Museum of Food and Drink. It's a great institution. Check it out, support it. And thank you uh, for listening today. We'll be back next week. Thanks a lot. for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. And thanks for listening.